Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Warning! If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. (laughs) And that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. Welcome to episode number 812 of the Wicked Library. Normally, this is where I remind you that we need your support on Patreon to keep the show coming. But I have something else to say today. This episode deals with mental illness. It's a dark ride, but it's a great wicked tale. We planned today's episode months ago, and it was in recording and production well before the unfortunate events surrounding the loss of one of my idols... A great storyteller, a badass, and a tortured soul, Anthony Bourdain. That being the case, I think it's worth taking a moment to say that if you're suffering, if you're struggling, if you feel the darkness is more seductive than the light, know that you are not alone, that you matter, and that we want you here and not there. I've brushed up against the darkness myself on more than one occasion, and I know how lost it can make you feel. It's a heavy weight that makes reaching out for help feel terribly difficult. But do it. Reach out, talk to a friend, a professional, or make a call to 1-800-273-8255. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. And hey, thanks for being wicked. Please, if you enjoy the stories you hear, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It keeps them making more. You can find links to them and their work at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, today's story is told by an amazing voice artist from Pittsburgh, Evan Schmidt. Evan's new to the show, so please find his contact info in the show notes and give him some love and a follow on Twitter. And check out his podcast, Get Creative with Evan Schmidt. I've been a guest on that show as well. Joining Evan in bringing the story to life today is, brilliantly I might add, Andy James as Jack, and the always amazing Erica Sanderson as Dr. Catherine Dross. 
This story also features a custom score by our resident composer, Nico Viteze, of We Talk of Dreams. And now, please remember to be afraid of what waits at the bottom by Eric Starn. Hello, kiddies. You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. (laughs) What Waits at the Bottom by Eric Starn There's nothing down there. Jack seemed unconvinced. He watched the bottom of the stairwell with a look of anxious concentration. Dr. Catherine Dross licensed clinical psychologist, followed his gaze down the long stairwell that connected her office to the lobby. A lamp in Catherine's office illuminated the upper landing, where client and shrink sat. Its feeble splash of yellow light was too weak to penetrate downstairs, leaving the lobby nearly pitch black. The only sensory input came from a noise machine in the lobby, which filled the space with white noise. In the darkness and silence, punctuated by the noise machine's mindless droning, Catherine imagined the staircase descending into the bowels of an ancient tomb, crawling with scarabs and scorpions and things far more sinister. There's nothing down there, she repeated. Her words belied her mind's subversive thoughts. Jack was Catherine's final appointment of the evening. She remembered their first conversation over the phone as Jack had a peculiar requirement. First, he needed evening appointments. The later, the better. Second, he wanted an office on the second floor. The closer to the staircase, the better. How perfect then that Catherine had an open slot from 7.30 to 8.30 in the evening. And, even better, a staircase led from the lobby to a small landing that connected to her office. That is why Jack chose Dr. Dross. Not because of her distinguished academic pedigree, No, because of the proximate distance between her office and the staircase. He refused to go upstairs during their first meeting. He insisted on having their appointment in the lobby, and it went on like this for every following appointment. It soon became apparent that Jack was deathly afraid of stairs. Figuring out why took little prying. Jack was one of the good clients. Good because, unlike many other clients... He was unafraid to open up. He revealed the origin of his phobia in a record three sessions. His fear had a foundation in past trauma. Jack met Jackie when he was just five years old. He told Catherine how he was so delighted to move in next to another Jack, and even more delighted and pleasantly surprised when he found out that Jack was actually a girl. You look a lot like her was one of the first things he told Catherine. This girl version of Jack was actually Jacqueline, 
She went by Jackie, and she was Jack's best friend until she died four years later. She died tumbling down a staircase. They were racing up and down the steps, as kids sometimes do. Jack knocked past her to take the lead. She lost her balance and violently fell. She died halfway down her flight. The unlucky collision between her neck and the steps produced a booming crack like a glacier splitting. Jack recalled the memory with his head hung in immeasurable anguish. That was 20 years ago. Yet the image, her arms and head draped over the bottom steps like the clocks in a Salvador Dali painting, never left him. Jackie's broken corpse waited for him at the bottom of any set of stairs ever since. He could not bring himself to walk up or down, especially down a staircase, until today. Today, Jack called ahead of his appointment to announce he was ready to conquer his fear. Today, Jack wanted his appointment at the top of the stairs. Catherine restrained a desire to give him a fraternal clap on the back. Moments of genuine progress, moments like this, were the high watermark of her profession. She was starting to feel like she had earned the doctor and PhD. However, her enthusiasm was dwindling ten minutes into their appointment. Catherine couldn't get a word out of him. He just stared at the bottom of the stairs with a look of anxious concentration. After another minute of respectful silence, she tried again. Gently, she said, Jackie's not down there. Of course not. They are, Jack said, with a voice like a thousand-yard stare. They? Jack's lips peeled back to form a scar-like grin. The things at the bottom of the stairs. Those words spilled out of Jack like a noxious vapor escaping a skull and crossbones marked barrel drum. Catherine dug her fingers into the plush armrests of her chair. Again, she imagined that ancient tomb crawling with scarabs and scorpions and things far more sinister. What are these? Catherine wiggled her fingers to form air quotes. Things at the bottom of the stairs. All I know is they follow me everywhere downstairs right now and they'll take me if I go down there. That scar of a smile slithered down into a grimace. Oh, I recommend you stay upstairs, otherwise they'll take you too. What do you mean by take me? Catherine asked. I mean they'll kill you, he said matter-of-factly. Oh. Catherine displayed a befuddled frown. What do they look like? Do they look like... Catherine searched for the right way to put it. The best way she could come up with was, do they look like Jackie? But that seemed to lack tact. Nothing better came to her. Do they look like Jackie? She offered. Jack snorted. No, they don't. I'm not sure what they look like, or what they are exactly. I've never seen them. Well, a couple of times I thought I saw a flicker of motion. Might have been a trick of the eye. I've only heard them for certain. I can just barely hear them now. Can you? Catherine could not. There was nothing to hear, save for the hum of the noise machine. No, she said. Probably should have turned off the noisemaker thingy, Jack mused. I can do that. Catherine started to get out of her chair to turn off the noise machine. It was unnecessary anyways, Catherine decided. The building was empty, so no one was trying to listen in on their private conversation. 
and anything to dispel his bizarre claims would be helpful. Jack stopped her before she could stand up. No! Jack bolted out of his chair and over to Catherine. He squeezed her shoulders and pushed her into her seat. He let his hands linger on her shoulders longer than necessary. Before he returned to his seat, Catherine saw something dangerous in his eyes, something that made her feel unsafe. It lasted only a tenth of a second, not long enough to fully comprehend, just long enough to put it on file and continue their session. Without realizing it, Catherine scooted an inch along her chair to close the distance between herself and her office. When did you first see, I mean, hear these things? Catherine said. Jack refocused his gaze to the dark lobby at the bottom of the long staircase with that look of anxious concentration. I must have been 10 or 11 because it was the summer between elementary and middle school. Sometime in July, I think. It was nighttime. I was trying to sleep, but I kept getting bombarded with texts from Jackie. Upon saying her name, Jack smiled a huge loving smile. He smiled like that when he brought up good memories of Jackie. It faded quickly. She wanted to show me something in the basement. She told me to meet her near the basement stairs and to leave any lights off. It was weird, but she seemed worried, so I went. I snuck over and I waited in her kitchen, which connected to her basement. I thought we'd meet there, but she didn't show up, so I headed downstairs. Jack shivered. There were old, concrete steps, very long. It was dark, all the lights were off. Halfway down, I had this thought that it wasn't Jackie texting me, but a psychopath who'd killed her, lured me over, and was waiting for me in the basement with a giant bloody knife. I scared myself so badly that I froze. Glad I did because I let my eyes adjust to the dark. Jack inhaled deeply, and his thousand-yard stare transformed into something more akin to dread. A silhouette was standing near the bottom steps, I didn't scream or run. My legs sort of wobbled and I fell on my ass. Pathetic defense mechanism, right? Silhouette told me to shut up. It was Jackie, thank God. Still, the way she stood there was really fucking creepy. You ever seen the Blair Witch Project? Catherine gave an affirmative nod. In the last scene, the heroine finds her friend inside the witch's house. He's standing in the corner with his back to her and his face pressed into the walls. That's how I found Jackie. One half of her face against the wall and the other half in darkness. She didn't respond until I got on the step next to her. She threw her arm out and held me back. Jack stretched his arm in a rigid line. She told me not to take another step. I asked if she was joking. Her eyes gave me my answer. I'd never seen such... Jack lowered his voice to a gravelly bass. Such fear. She told me to listen. We stood in darkness for a while, not making a peep. I started to get that creepy feeling the one gets standing still in darkness and was ready to turn around and leave when I heard it. Jack finally turned to Catherine. Never had she seen such fear on a human face. Something scraping across the basement floor. It started in the far corner. It was very faint at first, behind us and to the left. 
and made its way towards us. Jack stood. I can show you what I mean. I've practiced it. He went inside Catherine's office to the far side and began his reenactment. Jack walked with his left foot and forcefully dragged his right foot across the carpeted floor. It sounded like an ice scraper shearing frost off a windshield. Halfway across the office, he started speaking again, talking faster, and a franticness creeping into his speech. Three more followed the first one. They were much faster. I think they were hurrying to catch up. Jack moved quicker, the interval between scrapes shrinking. They stopped on the other side of the wall that Jackie was pressed against, just around the corner. Upon reaching the doorway, Jack hid on the other side. Catherine waited for him to reappear. He gave no indication of his presence. Catherine had grown more and more unsettled. His bizarre story was dubious, yet his conviction was unmistakable. And the fact that he acted it out, well, that did nothing to reassure Catherine. She waited longer. Thirty seconds of silence seemed to pass in slow motion. She wanted to call Jack's name. She almost did. But she refrained because, in her mind's eye, she calls his name. Are you there, Jack? And long gray fingers slither around the door jamb, and a huge gray head with inky black bulbous eyes peers hungrily at her. So Catherine held her tongue. She listened for Jack or whatever else hid on the other side of the door. Except the incessant hum of the noisemaker, oblivious to the imaginary drama unfolding upstairs, made listening difficult. Its incessant white noise droned over the mildest sounds. Catherine grinded her teeth, growing more and more agitated, and more and more fearful. An irrational desperation persuaded Catherine that everything would be a-okay, if only she would turn off the damn noisemaker. She concluded that turning it off, run down, run up, make it quick, was the best course of action. Then before she got up, she heard it. Something scraping across the carpet floor. It sounded like it came from the lobby, but it could have just as easily been Jack. In fact, it probably was Jack, Catherine reasoned. Or... It could be the things at the bottom of the stairs. Spooked, Catherine called out. Jack, is that you? The reply came from the other side of her office door. A disgusting noise like a choir of giggling babies with their heads plunged firmly underwater. Catherine gasped and put her hands over her ears. A figure came out of her office, Jack. He lurched towards her scraping his feet and mewling. He performed expertly, an indication of familiarity and practice. As he mimicked the things at the bottom of the stairs, his visage deformed into a ghoulish impression akin to the titular figure in the scream. Jack ended his performance with a smile and a bow. Catherine was relieved, yet not relieved at all, because the client she had always considered to be one of the good ones was becoming unpredictable and exhibiting bizarre behavior that even her most disturbed patients refrained from. Repressing a strong desire to give Jack a non-fraternal slap in the face, Catherine spoke. That's what the stare... things look like, she said. That's what they sound like. Remember, you can't see them. Everything else is artistic license. 
Oh, I imagine they're monstrous. Jack paced the landing. Me and Jackie sprinted once we heard that. That was my first encounter. We called them the stair people, though I personally prefer the things at the bottom of the stairs. Eventually, we got less scared of the stair people once we realized they're shy. They only come out when the lights are off, and they always hide around the corner, just out of sight. How wonderful, Catherine thought, as she looked down the staircase into the lobby with its hidden corners and turned off lights. Granted, we didn't dare go downstairs. That was out of bounds, Jack continued. But we'd do stuff to fuck with them, like shouting at them or throwing random junk downstairs and watching them take it. Like this. Jack dashed inside her office. He returned holding a stack of fat DSM-5 volumes. Carefully, he set them on his chair, ran downstairs to the bottom step, and knocked on the banister. He cupped his ears, listened a few seconds, then sprinted back up. Listen. He picked up a book. Catherine did not have time to protest his actions. The first book was already traveling in downwards flight. He tossed another one. What are you doing? Did you hear it hit the floor? Jack threw another book before she could answer. She didn't respond immediately because, come to think of it, she wasn't sure. The volume spiraled into the darkness like an unlucky moth that had meandered into a bug zapper. It disappeared almost entirely save for some shadowy motion. The shadow vanished when it passed the second to last step. No loud thud accompanied the completion of its gravity-bound journey. The noisemaker blocked the sound, Catherine said, not quite believing or disbelieving her words. The whimsical hum of the noise machine seemed to mock her justification. Jack repeated the ritual, throwing the remaining psychology volume. It ended in the same thudless result. The ritual concluded now that he was out of Catherine's books to sacrifice, and it was as if its conclusion summoned a vast silence, save for the noisemaker's drone. In the vast silence, its hum echoed from below like the wrathful moan of an ancient pharaoh awakened from his entombed slumber. And if Catherine listened hard enough, and she was listening hard, she could hear inhuman mewling coming from the bottom of the stairs. Catherine stared into the darkness in childlike terror. For a moment, she forgot she was Dr. Dross, licensed clinical psychologist. For a moment, she was a little girl named Jackie, discovering an unfathomable, lurking horror in her basement. Am I scaring you? Jack asked. Catherine snapped back to the present. Yes. She thought. Professionalism compelled her to respond with a... No. Do you believe me? Believe what? The things at the bottom of the stairs. Do you think they're real? Jack's eyes glowed with a lunatic energy. Maybe. But Dr. Dross could not admit that, especially not to a patient revealing his delusions for the first time. I'm concerned you're avoiding your memory of Jackie and replacing it with an imagined threat. Catherine utilized her best no-nonsense yet compassionate therapist voice. Why did you wait until now to bring this up? I'm afraid to tell the truth. The lunatic energy possessing Jack dissipated. No, not entirely. Just tucked away. He became miserable and fearful, and his limbs went rigid. He looked like a mouse cornered by a lion, Catherine decided. Why are you afraid to tell the truth? 
because I'm not a good person. Jack, that's not true. What makes you say that? The cornered animal looked at her with please let me go eyes. Don't judge me. Of course I won't. Catherine smiled warmly. Jackie didn't fall. Jack shrank into his chair. I pushed her down the stairs and I knew exactly what would happen. What would happen? Catherine asked. Her eyes flicked to the bottom of the stairs. The stair people would take her, he said. Why did you push her? I told you I'm not a good person, he said. What's the real reason? Catherine asked. I loved her. You had romantic feelings for her? Of course. I always loved her as a best friend, but I started loving her a different way. We've been growing apart, joining different social groups, talking less often, stuff like that. Came very noticeable by high school. I realized I had very little time left until we stopped speaking altogether, and any chance of telling her my feelings would be out the door. I found out her parents were gone for the weekend. That's when I decided to make a move. Jack shrank deeper into his chair. His voice shrank too. I rang her doorbell with a bouquet of pink and red roses in my hands. As soon as I heard her footsteps, I threw the bouquet into the bushes. I was too afraid she'd reject me right there on the doorstep if she saw them. Jackie opened the door. She had the biggest, most beautiful smile. A dreaminess relaxed Jack's face muscles, and he appeared happy. Then, he buried his face in his hands. We went inside and talked for a while, catching up and whatnot. I did nothing. I kept thinking it was time to make a move. Come on, Jack. Do something. Do something. Now or never, Jack. Now or never. But I kept waiting. We reached the point where we were running out of things to talk about, and it seemed clear I'd be leaving soon. Just to stall for time, I asked her if the stair people were still in her basement. She said yes. I asked her if she could show me. Told me yes, so we went to the basement, turned the lights off, and sat down to wait. We were sitting right next to each other in the dark. I mean, we were pressed up against each other. My heart never beat so fast. Jackie must have felt it because she grinned at me and asked if I was scared. Of all the times, that's when I decided to make a move. Jack scowled at himself. I didn't know what I was doing. Idiot! He smacked his forehead with a closed fist. It sounded painful. I grabbed her around the waist. She mistook it for me trying to scare her. Then I kissed her. She didn't react. She just gave me a confused blink. I kissed her again. She realized I wasn't trying to scare her. She shoved me off her. That's all I knew it was over. Fuck! Jack stomped the ground once. I was so angry. His face reddened really fucking angry. And he read her, and his eyeballs would pop out of their sockets, and ropes of lava would spray out the empty holes. I sprinted upstairs, shut the door, and locked her in. I told her the stair people will love her instead. She begged. Jack imitated her voice. Let me out, Jack. Please, let me out. With both his fists, he pounded on the wall. Let me out. Let me out. Too timid to be audible over Jack's insane pounding, Catherine asked him to stop. He went on. Let me out, Jack! Let me out, Jack! Let me out, Jack! 
Jack stopped pummeling the wall. He turned back to Catherine. His eyes were full of violence. In that moment, Catherine saw what Jackie would have seen if Jack had opened that door. No. He said in the cruelest, wickedest voice. Then Catherine knew what Jackie heard through that door. Confused, hurt, and terrified of the things in the darkness below her. And terrified by the man one step above her. Did you let her out? Jack sucked in air between clenched teeth. No, weren't you listening? I said no. Oh. I left her on the steps knowing she'd be stuck until her parents got back the next day. Jack said. Catherine wondered if Jackie's parents noticed a discarded bouquet of red and pink roses as they unlocked the front door. Weirdest part is... Jack gave the wall one more punch. I got a kick out of it. What part did you get a kick out of? Her fear. Fear and control. Especially control. And what happened to Jackie afterwards? We didn't talk again for a long time. We did much later, but I'll get to that. I want to talk about control. Jack's eyes sparkled. Catherine did not want to talk about control. He went on anyways. I'll warn you before I keep going. I'm a bad man, he said. I'm sure you're not, she said. Though tonight's revelations were changing that perception, and the lunatic energy corrupting his voice and body language did nothing to help his case. But I am. I, I like it so much that I've killed people for it. Oh. Ice-cold hands grabbed her guts and wrung them like a wet towel. What do you mean? I mean, I've killed people. Mostly women. Are you serious? Catherine didn't need to ask. His expression, stern and haunted and gleeful, was enough of an answer. Yes. How? How did I kill them? Catherine nodded. Her stomach lurched as she did. With a little push. Jack reached out and made a pushing motion in the direction of the staircase. What do you mean? I give them a little push down the stairs, and the things at the bottom of the stairs take them away forever. I thought the stair people were in Jackie's basement. No, you haven't been paying attention. Didn't you hear the books? They didn't make a noise. The stair people snatched them out of the air. They follow me everywhere. They're down there right now. Just go down and listen. I don't think that's the right thing to do during our session. The proper thing is to get inside my office and lock the door. No worries. Jack grinned. They're patient. Catherine scooched farther from Jack by one more imperceptible inch. Her subconscious knew that closing the distance to her office would be all important all too soon. Catherine proper was catching on. As I was saying, Jack continued, I started noticing them everywhere I went. They scared me so much that it contributed to me dropping out of college. I ended up getting a shit job and a shit apartment. An apartment on the first floor. No unnecessary stairs. Only problem with my apartment was that the laundry was in the basement. So if I wanted clean clothes, I had to go in the daytime and follow behind someone to be safe. Anyways, I had a girlfriend, Michelle Shears or something like that. She was a terrible person. Nothing like Jackie, but I just needed some company. Jack kicked the ground with a frown on his face. 
any company, he muttered. She'd mock me from my fear of stairs. She'd take my money and spend it at bars, and she'd screw guys she met at said bars. I decided I didn't need her, so one night I told her I'd show her the stair people that she so often laughed at. I took her to the stairs and went to the laundry room, held her in place on the bottom step. She was growing impatient, but lo and behold, the stair people always appear. Jack scraped his feet across the ground. He snickered. Scrape. 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 She asked me, what's that sound? I told her. The stair people, babe. Gleeful. Jack bounced in his seat. Her eyes turned white. I held her in place until they were right behind her, making that creepy giggling noise. I think I even saw them, or parts of them. There were these pale white streaks, their hands, I think, flickering in the darkness. Kind of reminds me of this documentary I've watched about piranhas. They get into these huge feeding frenzies where the water gets so murky that you can't tell what's happening. You just see a flash of movement, and you're suddenly missing a finger. I didn't see what they, I mean the stair people, not the piranhas, really looked like. Their bodies were hidden, just out of sight. I was so mesmerized that I forgot about Michelle. She started shrieking like a bitch. And that's when I pushed her. Jack flung up his arms in a spasm of excitement. Catherine looked in his eyes and saw what terrified her 30 minutes earlier. There was a hunger in his eyes, like a pack of hunting dogs barking and snapping as they heave against their chain collars. Catherine scooted another inch away from Jack. Every millimeter counted. I pushed others too. Every millionth of an inch. Shitty girlfriends, douchebags who screwed my shitty girlfriends, this stupid teenager staring at his phone. She had to get inside her office and lock the door. Professionalism be damned. I pushed him down the stairs at the subway station. Like a maglite blinking on and off, Jack's eyes oscillated between immense anguish and a violent, lunatic energy. You know what the worst part is? Catherine nodded. Her buttocks reached the seat's end. She tensed her calves, her glutes, and every other muscle in her body that she would need to launch her to safety. It's the look they give me. She visualized the proper steps. This look of disgust, utter terror, it's awful. Every time I see it, I tell myself it'll be the last time, but it never stops. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't happen often, maybe once a year. But the years add up. Step one, jump out of chair. It must be one huge leap, a straight shot inside my office. I forget their faces, their real faces. Step two, get inside office. I must clear the door and grab the doorknob immediately. I remember every stairwell it's happened at. I can picture that part very clearly. Step three, shut and lock door. I'll need to lock it before it closes, mid-swing. But I don't know what they look like. Step four, call police. When I try to remember them, I see Jackie. Oh, I'm sorry. Everything must be one fluid motion. No moving parts. I'm sorry, I didn't... I didn't mean it. One, two, three, four. Forgive me. One, two, three, four. 
Jump. Shut. Lock. Call. Forgive me. Jump. Shut. Lock. Call. Then, with frightening rapidity, the hunting dogs burst free. Jump. Catherine leapt out of her chair. She made it inside her office in one Olympian leap, as if a rope threaded between her ribs and tied off around her sternum had yanked her to safety. Shut. She caught the edge of the door the moment her front foot touched the ground. She flung the door shut and pivoted to throw her whole weight into the motion. The door slammed closed. Lock. Pinching the thin bar lock between her thumb and forefinger, she started to twist it from the horizontal unlocked position to the vertical locked position. Just as the lock reached a 60-degree angle, an opposing force, like an artillery round, smashed against the door. Jack, huge and animalistic, poured inside. Catherine scanned her desk for something heavy and solid. Laptop. She lifted the laptop above her head and brought it down, aiming for Jack, like a blunt guillotine. Jack grabbed her arm before the blow landed and batted the laptop to the floor. Don't fuck with me! Jack bellowed. He pulled once, very hard so that she fell. Jack dragged her out of her office into the landing. He pushed her down, down to the ground, held her in place with a single foot. Catherine heard a door shut and the pressure lighten. She got up and started to run downstairs. Jack snagged her before she could make it down a single step. He flung her into the chair and stood over her, holding her forearms down against the armrests. She could not move. You don't want to go down there, he said. Catherine glanced at her closed office door. It's locked, Jack confirmed. Catherine's heart pulsated wildly, any harder and it would slingshot out of her chest, punch a hole through Jack's abdomen, and plummet downstairs in a parabolic arc. What are you going to do to me? Huh? What are you going to do to me? What do you think? I don't know. Why do you think I come here? He said, still standing over her and locking her arms in place. Catatonic, Catherine said nothing. What is your job? He shook her. Psychologist? Exactly. His voice softened, yet he did not loosen his grip. I came here to tell you my story, and all you have to do is listen. And after you tell your story? Just wait and listen. Can you do that? His voice even softer. Melancholic. It had a calming effect on Catherine. I can do that, she said. Jack bit his lip. The area around his eyes trembled. Catherine had seen this many times in her sessions. He was going to cry. I reconnected with Jackie two weeks ago. I invited her to my apartment. God, she was beautiful. I immediately fell in love again had something to drink. We reminisced and then I thought I'd tell her what I told you. I told her about Michelle and the other people I pushed. I don't know why I thought this was a good idea. I hoped she'd understand me. She didn't. She just looked at me with... Jack's whole face puckered up and his body braced as if preparing for some massive impact. With this expression of total disgust. I knew it was over again. Any hope and love was over. Any hope of friendship was over. I had no control. 
I did to her what I did to the others. Tears trickled down his cheeks. I dragged her to the staircase, just like I did to Michelle, and I pushed her. She stared right in my eyes the whole way down. She didn't scream or say a word. She just stared. I think she was just sad and disappointed in me. A shockwave of anguish shuddered through his body, and he let go of Catherine. Jack plopped to the floor and sobbed. A strange calm came over Catherine as fear fled her soul. She felt like Dr. Dross, licensed clinical psychologist. She felt like something better, more genuine and pure. She watched Jack with a motherly attention. She waited for him to calm down. He had something to say. Catherine knew it. If you were Jackie, would you forgive me? Catherine put a hand on his shoulder. In a voice abundant with gentle warmth, she answered, I forgive you. Jack smiled, a smile that appeared real and grateful and relieved of pain. Thank you. He stood slowly, letting Catherine's hand fall aside. Of course, she said. Jack walked backwards down the staircase. He walked slowly, each step with a burden greater than weight, to the soundtrack of the noise machine's whimsical hum. He plunged into the darkness as if he was an island sinking into an ocean of black ink. Before the final wave forever covered his face, Catherine thought she saw Jackie instead. And then he was gone, under the black ink sea. His details were blotted out, yet his shadowy mass still vaguely visible. He reached the second to last step, took one more step back to the bottom of the stairs, and he vanished. Not only vanished, it looked like he'd been tugged around the corner as if a vacuum cleaner had sucked him up. There was no sound, no scream of terror, no creak as his foot lifted off the final step. He vanished. Simply vanished. A profound and haunting silence followed. Save, of course, for the mindless drone of the noise machine. Its hum became a flood of sand filling and resealing the antechambers and passageways and crevices of that ancient tomb where scarabs and scorpions and things far more sinister lurked. Catherine stood at the top step and gazed into the darkness at the bottom of the stairs with a look of anxious concentration. In a hypnotic trance, she descended the staircase. She sat down a few steps from the bottom, making sure her feet stayed off the lobby ground. She could hear them clearly now. Oh yes, so very clear. There she listened, as young Jack and Jackie once did, to the things at the bottom of the stairs. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. Well, they say he haunts this section of the road. Old Blind Bill. He waits at the bend of the road just past mile marker number nine. 
and startles drivers that happen by late at night, especially those with expired contact prescriptions. You see, Bill was a contact wearer too, but he never got him updated. It's never a good idea to drive with expired contacts. Not when it's so easy to get them updated with simple contacts. It's the most convenient way to get your prescription renewed and stock up on your contact lenses. Oh, sure, Bill was always in a hurry. He didn't realize that instead of an annual appointment, taking hours to schedule, drive to, wait for the doctor, and then finally get your exam... You can take their five-minute vision test online. Bill was a penny-pincher, too. But who can blame him? Things are expensive these days, with exams costing as much as $200. He'd rather save that money. But maybe if he had known it was only $20 to take their self-guided five-minute online test... Bill would have been able to see clearly and not suffer that fateful accident. Getting your eye exam and contacts doesn't have to be a horror story. Just take your quick self-guided vision test from your phone or computer. It's reviewed by a licensed doctor within 24 hours and you receive a renewed prescription to reorder your favorite brand of contacts. And if you have an unexpired prescription... You can upload a photo or put in your doctor's info to order your contacts in minutes. Nothing scary about it. Not only does it save you a wicked amount of time and money, with exams costing only $20, standard shipping free, and unbeatable prices on all brands of contacts, but when you visit simplecontacts.com slash wickedlibrary and use the promo code WICKED, you'll get $30 off your order. While it's not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, which you still need occasionally, Simple Contacts takes the terror out of renewing your prescription and getting your contacts. One thing we can all agree shouldn't be something to be afraid of. Order yours today and get $30 off at simplecontacts.com slash wicked and use the promo code WICKED. So today my guest is Eric Starn, and we just listened to your tale, What Waits at the Bottom. And uh, I got to tell you, I, right away from the title, it's 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 something that kind of grabs you. And it's uh, I think it ties into a lot of those, I don't know, maybe it's childhood fears. You know, I think everybody's afraid of stairs. Everybody's afraid of the dark. Stairs are interesting because, you know, you're always walking towards the unknown, especially if it's something dark at the bottom. And you have this thing where you... If you do encounter something, not only do you have to turn around, but you have to turn your back to it as you're moving upward. So I think there's just a lot of things built into that. Uh, so it's a great place to start. Yeah. Well, uh, the whole reason that that story started, I guess, I mean, there's reasons for why I wrote it. But why the stairs? I guess it's been one of my longstanding uh, childhood fears, like you said. Um, like to, And to this day... I, I will still kind of like just scurry up the stairs and uh, in my like living room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I used to, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people who probably write horror um, do so. And I'm no exception because 
they are still like still have like those memories of what haunted them as children or like deeply fascinated by like why did something that nowadays is completely benign like why did this cause so much like dread and so for me it was the staircase and particularly i thought there was like a, a witch living inside of the um the 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 fireplace and so the stairs would kind of go past it and so i thought you know i had to get run up there in time before she like swoop in and grab me and uh, <laughs> i don't know i, I guess <laughs> that's like the actual reason why I, like the, the, the genesis of it yeah i mean it's um, one of the things that comes up over and over again when i talk to the authors you know horror is very personal so if you can tap into those personal things i think it makes the story much more real not only to you when you're writing it which translates to when someone's reading or listening to it but you know obviously we all have some some common fears like you said you know stairs mm-hmm. you know i mean I, I think that's almost everybody has you know the floor is made of lava type of thing so there's there's these common things that when we're kids that we're afraid of or that we all connect with and to take that and tap back into that in a in a way that's really interesting I think is is a, a great way to pull someone kind of deep into the story. You know, it's it's letting the the listener, the reader, do some of the work, which makes it more personal. Yeah, and um, another thing though, so it is so to make it even more personal. Actually, that so there's that fear I already had, mm-hmm. and then I think so. I see, I do see a, a psychologist like once or every other week, and she oddly enough has this like staircase. It leads up to her office, like in the story. And I think I came in late once for like, like I like scheduled it because like the early time didn't work. And it was like dark out. And I was like, this is kind of creepy. Like there's just a staircase. I can't see around the corner. Like it's no, there's no lights on here. Like how, ugh, like I just, I was kind of like unsettled going, <laughs> going down them. And that's, it's like that like initial concern I had as a kid yeah. combined with that really specific setting which mm-hmm. is why the setting is so specific in the story or like, like why that's the reason why i came up with the um that whole that's probably where it really came from and it it started out differently as well like at first it was like the psychotherapist therapist went missing or there's like a disease they, they had disappeared and it was a police officer who was investigating and like listening to the recordings um of like their their of the sessions mm-hmm. but i just found it like way too difficult to try and like juggle back and forth between you know like this static there's just these conversations where it's just on tape recorder so like you can't really see what's happening mm-hmm. to like what this guy's thinking inside of his head so um i don't know where i'm going with that but just it started out as something you know different and certainly evolved yeah, that's one of the the fun things about doing the short stories that we do is, you know, trying to find ones that work not only in the written form, but also for audio, because it's it's a different experience. And what you're describing would probably work really well for audio, but I can see where you're coming from. That would be kind of a difficult thing to convey um, whenever you're going in the written medium. I mean, where it is now and how it's written, it's kind of very in the moment the, the reader's kind of in the same room when everything's going on. Uh, so there is a little bit more of that personal investment that kind of pulls you deeper into the fear. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's definitely like a way to pull it off that way, but yeah. I just like, uh, this didn't, 
It's it hard work. It is. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Well, aside from that, which, I mean, obviously you solved that problem and, and <laughs> kind of moved into the story as we see it now. Once you decided that that was the format that you were going for, what was your biggest struggle with the story? Was there anything else that kind of was a challenge about it? Uh, and, and, and and most importantly, how did you solve it? Um, Probably getting started writing yeah. and doing it consistently. Um, I think that's always been the uh, struggle just with any creative project for me. Yeah. Just being like, okay, like you got to sit down and just focus and work through it and like hit that group where, uh, where you, you know, you kind of enter like that creative state of mind. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is tied in probably with self doubt to some extent. So I think it's a combination of just sitting down, but I think like, why is it hard to sit down? I think that's because a lot of times, um, you're just like, well, I can't do this. Like, I, I like, what, what do I know? Like, I, because like most of my time has like been writing has just been like essays for for college and I don't know I just really wanted to I, I'd give like a, a short story a shot and like really like try mm-hmm. to like do one because I've been um, I hadn't like read for the longest time and then one of my really good friends got me back into reading and uh, with Stephen King so I hadn't been reading for like years years um, anything seriously mm-hmm. and then I read Stephen King and I was like wow like this is I thought I thought it was incredible. Yeah, at least the way he's describing things, I could actually see it. And I just thought, you know, I just want to give this like a shot. I'd love to just try and write something like, really, like just where I just you know give give like a short story a shot and try it out. So I had it come from. There's a lot of like bumps in the road and just the, that kind of fear of failure because I don't see myself at like I you know I wasn't like I'm a short story writer. Time to write another short story it was like let's jump into this and like try really hard to to do it right yeah that's really i think one of the biggest struggles that that any writer and any creative has whenever you're working on something be it you know short story writing or novel writing or writing music or uh producing audio narrating all that stuff there's there's always that that fear that it's not going to come out the way that you want it to. And Mm -hmm. the hardest part is like you said, putting pen to paper to actually get started. I think there's tons of great writers out there. There's probably a lot more great writers out there than we get exposed to because the hardest thing is not actually doing it, but to be consistent about it and to finish it Mm -hmm. Um, because of a myriad of reasons. And one of them being, of course, you know, that there's so many other greats out there that you admire. And it's like, who am I? to create something next to what this person's creating. So mm-hmm. congratulations on getting it down on paper and getting it through and editing and all that stuff. <laughs> Thanks. So how, how many drafts did it take for you to get the story in the form that we heard it? Probably. I don't know. Actually, I think it took maybe four. I know like I can just, I'll just run through it. So I think the first time I tried writing it was by, like, by hand. Mm-hmm. And that was really, I don't know, my hand cramp. After a while, but I got the basic. <laughs> I got the basic idea out, which is just you know like these things at the bottom of the staircase that you can't really see, but you can tell they're there, and that they're at like every staircase. That was like that was all that there really was when I just hand wrote it. And then I think there were two attempts at the police officer version, mm-hmm. and then probably three more. 
probably two attempts in the other version where like the this the version that you saw mm-hmm. and then i um i forget like what there's something where like, the plot went a totally different direction originally but i really can't recall by now i think about it but then i think then the editing was like two or three solid solid edits um so yeah it's it, that's i think that's for a lot of people the hardest part is the edits you know to, to when you finally get the story and you think it's working to, when you start to dig into it and edit it to find that there's still problems and there's things to polish up and clean up but uh yeah, it's, it, I could tell that it definitely went through uh, several edits and, and that it came out because it's a clean story. It makes sense. It fits together. It's logical. It's uh, it, it does all the good things that you want a story to do. And, uh, you know, there's there's definitely a strong sense that there's some ownership in this, meaning, like we were talking about earlier, that, you know, I can tell there's some personal uh, there's some personal fears that are invested into this. And I think, like I said, I think those are the strongest stories are the ones where it's what scares you. It's what affects you um, that that really come across that way. Yeah. Well, actually, something funny about that is editing processes, oddly enough, my probably my favorite part, which is like really counterintuitive. Hey, everybody has their own bag. So that's great. You know, that's yeah. for some people. That is what it is. It's It's the polish. It's like you got this this thing and now you're. You're kind of building it and putting it together, so I can see that. But yeah, most most authors that I t- authors that I talk to that feels like the most arduous part. Uh, so if the editing part is is easy for you, or it's the part you enjoy the most, you're going to do well. Well, that's when I come up with like metaphors and like the description because when mm-hmm. it's actually written, it just really is. Um, it's really unappealing. Yeah, I mean, like your, your first your there, first draft you're going through, you're kind of still telling the story to yourself and figuring it out. So, yeah, absolutely. So the editing I like is, I think my favorite part about reading and about writing are, like, little sentences that just are, like, delight you. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, that's fun. Like, little, just, like, segments. Like, those, that's what really excites me about a story. Is like, when I read a metaphor and I, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I had never thought about, you know, I never thought about... Um, like one of my favorite metaphors, I'm gonna keep going back to Stephen King, but he has this description where in in um it where it's this water tower is like falling down the side of a hill. And the way he describes it, paraphrase, is like a, a giant with Fritz crackers in its boot stomping down the hill. And like that, so like little thing like things like that where the language just really grips me. Like that's my favorite part. And I feel like when I'm writing, that doesn't happen. When I'm writing, it's more like he does this like it's more about like the just the straight forward action and the editings where the, the language comes out right right yeah it, it it does tend to be a little clunky the first time through uh i mean and and you know those that are successful at writing understand that that's kind of when you're just getting everything down on paper you're you're kind of like i said you're discovering the story you're telling it to yourself it's a little blocky it's a little clunky you're just getting it into the general shape it's when you get in there and start fine tuning that you really start to see what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very true. So what attracts you to writing horror and speculative fiction out of all the different genres? Or maybe there are other, are other genres that you enjoy writing. But, um, you know, for this story, obviously, we're very solidly in the horror and speculative yeah. fiction arena. Um, I think as I just get, well, one, I've always been had an overactive imagination as a kid mm-hmm. and I get scared quite easily. So I'm still 
sort of like when I, you know, go to like the kitchen and it's like dark out and the lights are off and I had that thing where it's like, okay, what if someone's look or the lights are on in my, you know, inside the kitchen and like, they can someone see me, but I can't see them out there. Like I, I still have those moments and I'm, I'm guessing like a lot of people do. Yeah. But they seem like really visceral for me. Um, and like, the, but like those like little thoughts will like just explode right then and there. Like, uh, and I guess other thinking about fiction or other genres, it doesn't really happen to me, but it seems that I am predisposed to turn the mundane or like mildly unsettling or not really unsettling, but just like a dark room into just something like terrifying. Just, and my brain just does that on autopilot. <laughs> so yeah, it just seems like that's where my creativity uh, likes to go. It's just like a kind of dark, dark place by by nature um so you know roll with gotta roll with it yeah no and you know I, I, and you mentioned stephen king I'm, I'm pretty sure it's from on writing where he talks about you know the the dark hours and and two o'clock three o'clock in the morning whenever everything is dark and quiet that that's when the monsters come out because as writers we teach ourselves we teach our imaginations to misbehave so if you're good at that, you are able to imagine all those things that most people don't think about. That's yeah. kind of the job, right? Yeah. Well, I feel like with horror, just kind of like it just like other things I have to try a bit harder. Mm-hmm. But like seriously, just like coming from like creepy stuff, it just like it just pops into my head because I think my I think it just I've never haven't gone past. And, you know, I think it's partially because I've always been fascinated by that. Um mm-hmm. I think being scared is a very interesting emotion, especially to, to see to like this to especially when it is more about being scared, but about pleasure. Mm-hmm. And like why do we why do we like to like why do we like to be scared? I think it's such a fascinating um fascinating like really part of the, the human experience is it's- this desire to be scared. And there's different gradients of it too. Like there's just, you know, there's someone jumping out like that. And just saying boo, right? It's scary, but then it gets deeper. And what's really interesting is when you're creeped out and you're disturbed, disturbed, and you sort of have that thing where if you like seen like a really unsettling movie, and you just can't get it out of your head. And I think that's so interesting how like fear has this this gradient that goes extremely deep and and goes into like this places that don't seem like they're like in our animal. You know, nature, like, I just feel like being truly disturbed doesn't seem like something you would need as an animal evolving in the, you know, savannah, but um, it seems like a very human. Yes, thing. the creeping terror. It's a very intellectual thing. Um, mm-hmm. Or as uh, one of my friends calls it, pleasing terrors. Um, you know, there's there's uh, there's that there's the enjoyment to. You know, an overlying creeping dread that just kind of grows and grows because it's very hard to maintain fear at the same level. And if you can get into that creepy factor where that fear just continues to be there at that low level and then build slowly, I think it's it's something that's very enticing. Yeah. And it's just it's just interesting. Like, why is that? I, I mean, I haven't really answered that question as to why. It's appealing. I don't think any of us have. (laughs) There's a lot of there's a lot of discussion on that topic. And, you know, we all have kind of our own theories, but uh, there's definitely something innate in us as 
uh, as humans and as story machines, because, you know, we're really the only animal that tells stories, um, you know, that, that loves that, that mystery, that dread, that creeping, um, emotional entanglement that we get. And it's, you know, it goes back to folk and fairy tales and which I think are really the original horror stories and into modern Mm. day. So, um, and, and on that topic, is there a particular, uh, story or a book or something that you've read that really kind of changed the way that you looked at the world and your place in it? Doesn't necessarily have to be horror, but it could be. Yeah, there is. Um, so the story by Isaac Asimov, it's called The Last Question. It's my favorite short story. Oh, yes. Um, so you're familiar with it? Yes. Um, Asimov is, is, a, is a fantastic writer for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, one of the things that I've always liked about his writing is it's it's a very simple it's not flowery. It's not, you know, overblown. It's a very simple writing style, but he definitely is able to connect with you uh, and, and kind of pull you into his world very easily. Yeah, no, it's, he's, he's a great writer. And like the ideas he has are just oof, absolutely mind blowing. So in that story, like the, the everything summed up is it is that this AI in, that we create, we, we develop this AI intelligence and it sort of evolves with us as we evolve you know well into the future mm-hmm. and we keep asking it how do we stop entropy like how do we stop the universe from pretty much dying out and it keeps saying well i don't have enough information give me some time to work on this and then we finally get to the point where the universe is just at, at, on its last legs and the last star is burned out and the human race which is like transcended into these you know almost m- more like metaphysical beings at this point their last source of energy is gone. And then this AI just exists in its own world outside of the universe. And then it just finally figures out the answer. Um, it says, but it realizes it has nobody to tell the answer to. So then it ends with it saying, let there be light. And when I read that, I read that <laughs> in, in middle school. And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> like just totally blown away by it. And yeah. that story like gave me this thought. <laughs> that Okay, this is kind of weird, but whatever. Um, that the, that the the purpose of like life and intelligent life is to be part of the universe's like reproductive system and mm-hmm. kind of sustain it in the future. And I was thinking like, oh my god, like what if that's why we're here? It's like, like years and years down the line, like whatever like we do or whatever we create, whether it be like AI, ends up sort of like jump starting this this process again. Um, so I don't know how that has changed me like personally because I'm not really able to you know, have much of an influence on the fate of the universe, but like that, it's just something that I think is, this just totally blew my mind. And it's, and that's what a good story does is it makes you think and it and it opens your mind to looking at things in different ways and in new mm-hmm. ways. And, you know, I think that's part of the job as a writer is to create those stories that people connect with. And it just changes them in a slight ineffable way. Um, and maybe, you know, that story probably is something that spurned you eventually to want to write creatively yourself. So, um, you know, that's, that's the fun of, of being involved in stories and storytelling is it's kind of, uh, it's, it's not only is it addictive, but it's also, um, it's something you catch. It's, it's like a disease, you know, once you, once you fall in love with storytelling, it's something that you want to be a part of and, mm. you know, you need to make your own as well. So. Yeah, true. So 
what does I mean, aside from, you know, the, the, the stuff that we've talked about with the fear of the dark and the, and the stairs, fears that aren't necessarily personal to you, ones that you that you don't necessarily have and, and have brought with you from childhood. Is there anything that you can think of that a story has to do regardless of the topic to kind of scare you and to make you forget you're in a story? So one of the things that I find like truly horrifying, and this is actually probably the scariest thing in the world to me, not, no, not the scariest thing in the world, but like when I really want to get creeped out, I don't read a short story. I like read, I go on like Reddit and I read the personal like firsthand short stories mm-hmm. or I listen, you ever like see those where it's, it's just someone it's like, tell your true story. And like someone talks about like being at a gas station and some like guy comes in and tries to kidnap them. And it's not, you know, the writing doesn't have any flourish to it. It's just someone telling their story as it happened in like really simple language. Like it's not there. There's no like, it's not like an artistic um, act. It's just more of like this. Let me tell you something scary that happened to me. And I don't know why, but I find those like to be absolutely horrifying. Even if they're, I don't know if they're real Mm -hmm. or not. And um. Yeah, the, you have the you have the personal this happened to me type of thing going on with it, where it's it's something that uh, doesn't have all the bells and whistles. It's very plain, very raw, but it's it's a story that's compelling because it feels very real uh, in the way that it's written, in the way that it's told, in the way that it's experienced. Yeah. So I think there's that like there has to be like an actual threat i think that's like part of it is like it just conveys yes like bad things can happen to you and bad things do happen to people and your life is in danger like just to be reminded of that i think that's probably why it's scary part of a big part of why i find it scary is because it just reminds you like oh you know this is not necessarily a safe world right um it's dangerous and i think when I get that sense from a story that really digs deep into me. Yeah. Um, so I think like a quiet place. I saw that recently. Really amazing movie. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Brilliant. And that's one of the parts that I found so compelling about it. Is it just like from the beginning, it's like you are in a dangerous world that don't have any, like don't have, there's no confusion about it at all. Like this is a, like a life or death situation at every moment. Um, and I thought that underlying current was what really gripped me about the film. Yeah. Now there's, so it's I, one of the best horror movies that that I've seen in a long, long time. So <laughs> f- fans of the show, listeners, that's it's one to go out and grab. But I, I will tell you, um, because th- the show is is always about promoting the authors and promoting horror in general. So you know, while we love what we do and we think we do a great job, there's other stuff out there that's fantastic and. If you like the the personal narrative type of thing, the very basic um, cutaway horror where it's just you and the person you're listening to, Knife Point Horror is another podcast um, that's fantastic. Um, and, and it's just his voice. There's no music. Uh, a lot of times you don't even really get an introduction. You're just kind of right into the story. Um, and it's if, if you like that kind of thing, it's something that you would probably really enjoy because it's really well done. Really, so it's it's just like um, like firsthand stories, like people telling like their really share of him. Yeah, and I'm going to murder his name, but it's uh, Soren Narnia, I believe, is his name. But it's 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 just him. It's just his voice, and he has some 
he has some very strong opinions on um, the way that horror should be done. And I think we, you know, horror is very personal, so we all kind of have our opinions. But, you know, he he believes that there should be no music. There should be no bells and whistles. It should just be kind of you and the narrator's voice. And there is something about the way that he tells a story where it's, you know, it's like you're listening to somebody at the bar telling you a story. And, you know, he can go on and on for you know, 20 minutes talking about just driving and it just gets creepier and creepier without him really doing very much in the way of building it up. And, um, you know, so listeners of this show and you who say, you know, that that's one of the things that you like, I think you'd probably really enjoy it. So it's one to check out. I definitely will. It's interesting. It reminds me of, um, I was like, kid. I went to, I forget where I went, but there's a storyteller is, is during Halloween. And it's just this old dude who just, telling this story about a uh, haunted rocking horse and it was just you know him it's just him speaking telling a story nothing to it no one was playing music like tapping on drums or anything it is him like slowly like building this you know up this sort of pulse to this dramatic point and that was like i still remember just the not so much the exact words but just the emotional power of someone who's been who's a fantastic storyteller yeah um, bring it to that point. So, since we're talking about your story and and the you know the the, the way that you build your built your story and the and the fact that you know you found this love for writing short stories, where are, is some place where listeners can find more of your work? Is there anything out there that you're working on that uh, uh, folks can dig into if they if they really enjoyed today's story and want to find more? Um, well, I don't have a lot of work. I've been writing a, so this is kind of funny. The whole reason why this story started along with reading Stephen King, um, I started writing a novel. That was my first project. I was like, I read Stephen King. I was like, I'm going to write a horror novel. And that's been a really long process. And I wrote this story while like, like after like a few months of doing that, I was like, I need like a, I need a little victory. I need a win. I need to complete something and just have it done. Um, so one day when this thing is finished, <laughs> yes, there'll be more out there, but I've been working on this like book for, for quite some time now, like a, over a year. And well, I, now I, you have an audience, so you're going to have to finish it. Um, I know it's it, like kind of intense. Jeez. Man. Right. And in the meantime, if you have some additional short stories, obviously, you know, let us know. And we do, uh, we do special episodes for Halloween. We do obviously anthology episodes on a quarterly basis so it doesn't have to be as long as today's short uh, short story and you know if you have something we we we're getting uh we're getting kind of booked up for our season for season eight uh but you know obviously you know we'd look at stuff for you in, in the future for season nine and beyond yeah i mean i definitely have some stuff i'm like kind of um you know playing around with but mm-hmm. haven't like put the uh you know, pedal to the metal um kind of like absorbed with finding a full-time job <laughs> like right now because I graduated. Right. <laughs> That's like one thing, but yeah, that, that does take uh, priority at times. I understand that food is, is a important thing. It is. Can't live without it. That's right. <laughs> so I guess in closing, what is the best way for folks that listen to today's story and, and want to tell you how awesome it was or ask you when your next piece is going to come out? What's the best way for folks to reach out to you and interact? Okay, let me. I have a SoundCloud account where I just, you know, post music that I find and like, and I have some like old mixes from when I uh, DJed. 
in college, probably still up there. Excellent. If they really want to reach out to me, I guess you could um, reach out to me through that. Let me find the account name of it. I still go on it. Just another name. Oh boy. Okay, the account. It's called Aspiring Space Whale, and it's like capital first letters capitalize on each one, and there's a space between each word. Okay. Um. Gosh, should I like make like a little website and just? Is that expensive? <laughs> Not terribly. Uh, okay. I mean, you you can do a WordPress blog pretty much for nothing. Um, oh, but um, you know, we will have, of course, a uh, a link to to anything that you want in the episode. So, if folks, go to the show notes for the episode and click on your bio information. Uh, they'll be taken to a page where we can put in any links that you like. So, anything that you haven't sent me already, feel free to send me an email, and I'll be happy to to link it up for you. Okay. Yeah, maybe I will get on that. It's kind of dabble with the thought. Everybody's got one these days, right? Yeah, it seems that way. All the cool kids have one. Oh, man. <laughs> I've got to. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again so much for sending the story in and, and for taking the time to talk about uh, your writing path and the future of what you're working on. Uh, it's been a great discussion, and I hope folks will check it out, and I hope you'll come back again to the show. I'd love to. And it's, it's been great. Thank you so much. I was like so happy when I got that email. Excellent. The story was accepted. I, just, you know, is a, is a great victory for me and like, a really good moment to, to, to like, you know, have confirmation of what you're doing. You know, like the work you're putting in matters. So absolutely. Thank absolutely. you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. I'm glad we could share it with the folks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover, created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on, unless you want the things at the bottom of the stairs to find you. <laughs>